Welcome to the Feeling Bookish Podcast. My name is Rob Fay in Beaverton, Oregon. I'm with Roman Sivkin in New York City. Heston Hoffman, our sound engineer, is across the Willamette River in East Portland. And we have a special guest, a returning guest today. We have uh, the writer and translator Josh Calvo, um, who we will chat with uh, in a moment here. Uh, but we today we're going to look at uh, a couple of articles that have uh, caught our interest. Um, and we're calling today um, the podcast, we're, we're thinking about the, the, the big tent of literature, or I should say the big dialogue of literature. Um, and uh, there was a fascinating interview that uh, I think, Roman, you were able to find in... Um, yeah, thanks to uh, Andre from The Untranslated. Yeah. yeah. And so um, I believe it's a fascinating site, Hungarian Literature Online. And it's... Uh, oh, that's a great in, website, by the way. It's a really... Yeah. I, I've seen stuff from there for years now that's really good. So it's worth uh, worth checking out in general. Yeah, and it's a um, uh, it's in English, of course, um, and I think it, it hints at the, you know, the rich world of uh, Hungarian literature. I mean, of Krasnohorkai and Peter Nadas, uh, two monster writers that that come to mind. Um, but there's a really really interesting interview in the article or in, in the site by um, Mircau uh, Kortorescu, the Romanian novelist. Um, kind of about the role of the intellectual in today's society. So that that's something that caught her eye. And then there was another article in 3AM magazine, um, a review of a new collection of essays called American Literature as World Literature. Um, and the review is by uh, Jeffrey uh, DeLeo. Um, really, really interesting stuff there. So that's something that um, We'll kind of use as a as a jumping off point today in our discussion, uh, and Josh Calvo will be joining us. And so, before we get into that, I, I wanted to uh, welcome Josh. Welcome you back. You you came and spoke to us uh, several months ago for an episode called um, Arabic and Hebrew Literature, which has um, been quite popular and and generated a lot of interest. So. Uh, welcome, and we're having you back to join the discussion, but also to talk about. Um, you have been in Egypt uh, on a fellowship. You're in New Jersey currently, uh, but welcome. And and how's Egypt, man? What what are you doing there? Well, thank you so much for having me again. And um, I'm just thrilled we've been able to keep in touch. It's been almost a year, I think. I mean, we've Has been it really? in a while. Yes. Yeah, we spoke <laughs> yeah. around last spring, and it's nearing spring to some degree, or at least yeah. the weather is more springy than it should be. Um, uh, so how's Egypt? I mean, Egypt is uh, is a strange whirlwind of a place. Uh, I never quite know how to answer the question, yeah. which I received from all in sundry, <laughs> how's Egypt or what's life in Egypt like? It's yep. it's a challenging place, no doubt about it, but it, it has very particular rewards that I don't think one can get elsewhere. Mm. And I don't mean the food or the pyramids. Um, the food is actually its own animal. And, you know, you could do a whole podcast in the Feeling Foodie podcast about Egyptian <laughs> food and whether or not they should be responsible for the great, you know, famous foods like falafel that people from the Middle East love and love to claim mm. ownership of. But um, no, I mean, I've had a lot of unique experiences there. I've managed to meet local writers. I've had the time and space and the right environment and resources to work on my translation. My Arabic has gotten better. 
mm-hmm. uh, which is a no, no small task because Arabic is just, you get to a certain level of advanced training and it, it just plateaus. Um, and what what is the what is the structure that that is there? You're affiliated with a, a university, uh, a sister university in in Cairo, or do you kind of, kind of what what does your uh, fellowship entail, or or are you really independent there to to structure your time as you as you wish? Well, I wish I could say I was, but I'm yeah. on a fellowship uh, called the CASA or Center for Arabic Study Abroad Fellowship. It's at the American University in Cairo, which has two campuses. One campus is in the new Cairo campus. I don't know if you guys would know, but the Egyptian government is actually building a new capital. They're calling New Cairo. Um, (laughs) And they're sort of leaving behind, quote unquote, old Cairo. But it's a slow and difficult and challenging process. So most of the university has moved to New Cairo. Our program is in downtown, right outside Tahrir Square, where the famous protests were, I think, nine years ago today, or nine years ago yesterday. Oh, wow. Um, And, yeah, so the the program is quite old. I mean, I think it's been around from the 60s, and it received Department of Education funding and and maybe even State Department funding as well. And it's been the premier study abroad, not study abroad, like undergraduate study abroad, but like professional study abroad program. Everyone who ended up doing something serious in their professional career with Arabic worked their way through this CASA program. So it has a certain amount of prestige built into it. And, you know, ever since I started learning Arabic, people spoke about it in whispers. And I never really thought I was going to be able to go, to be honest with you, because it's a whole year abroad and the scheduling was complicated. And But eventually I got to a point in my PhD where I felt like I'm never going to have this opportunity again. It's fully funded. Let me apply and go. And I did. And here I am. Yeah. And and. Is it fair to say that um, within the Arab world that that Egyptians do kind of see themselves as the the leading lights of of Arabic culture and civilization? <laughs> and, and and does that does that extend to literature and the arts in general, or is that a a, a misconception? I mean, I don't. I I could say something that would get me in trouble uh, <laughs> with the ordinary Egyptians, but you know, I mean, it's it's kind of. Common joke that yeah. Cairo is known in Arabic as Umadunya or Mother of the World or Mother of the Universe, if you like. Yeah. Um, and I do think that ordinary Egyptians, whatever their politics, uh, do tend to retain a little bit of a, uh, to put it politely, slightly inflated sense of importance. The Arab yeah. world doesn't really have a center anymore. It, yeah. It, we're 1967 right now, and 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 Nasser was, you know, at the if there was a photo of Nasser in every Arab home from Morocco to Iraq, that would be one thing. But there are really more regional sort of junctures rather than a single definitive center. That being said, it's still the largest Arabic-speaking country. Um, There's still an element of prestige that sort of refuses to budge. And I think that affects ordinary people's experiences of, of being Egyptian, actually. Yeah, and and I know that um, I'm curious, sort of the political situation, and in, in terms of how it how it affects um, you or or uh, uh, university students or intellectuals or or liberals in particular, because you know the Muslim Brotherhood was um, uh, democratically elected, and then um, there were protests um, against their reign, and of course they came 
they came down on those protesters and, and uh, the military uh, essentially uh, took over. I know that's a simplistic uh, summary, but what what is it, you know, what is the state of being um, a thinker, an artist uh, in Egypt these days? Wow, I thought the, the prior question was hard. Um, <laughs> well, I, I, kind of, I doubt the Egyptian Secret Service is listening in on literary podcasts. Um, yeah. You know, back in September, which was, I guess, my second or third month in Cairo for the year, so I kind of had my bearings, there was a small protest. I mean, I mean, in and of itself, it wasn't small. It was actually a pretty big deal that there was a protest. There's... I mean, the Egyptian government has jailed a large number of its own citizenry and people are scared and there is a real cracking down. So the fact that this protest exploded one Friday night after a soccer match um, was a remarkable thing. But it was barely covered in, you know, sort of Western media outlets. I think it, it made it into the back of The New York Times. And it, it seemed like a kind of nothing. But on the ground for at least a month, if not longer, the environment, the the emotion, the atmosphere just completely changed. I mean, there were tanks in Tahrir Square. There were people, soldiers who would check your phone. I was told to delete anything Hebrew from my phone, which I thought was absurd. Why would anyone care? Um, We were just, we were told to be careful. I mean, and, and there have been situations where you know, I'm an interloper. I'm not, I'm not an Egyptian citizen. I'm theoretically, as an American male, I can do almost anything I want with impunity, almost. But even so, I've had to make certain conscious choices about where I go. And I'll say on another note, in, in terms of Jewish life, of which there is a small, very small group of people who are interested and want to do something, that has also been a bit of a challenge. Um, I mean, even just to get into the main synagogue, which is still downtown and is still under heavily military guard, even though it's very, very difficult to get in there, is a challenge. And I wasn't around for the high holidays, but that too was a challenge. And um, in terms of the literary and the intellectual life, uh, you guys may know that the Cairo International Book Fair is going on as we speak um, through the first week of January. And there's been an ongoing controversy where, I can't remember his name, I think it's Khaled something, a major head of a publishing house has been in jail for some time now, head of the Tenmiya or development publishing house. And so different booksellers and publishers who are involved in the fair are having to sort of try and make choices of how to support uh, Tenmiya and this unfortunately jailed publisher without actively doing so because it's kind of, you know, you you would get kicked out too. Uh, so it's a tough time. I mean, that's, I guess, the kind of soundbite version of the answer. No, that's a, that's a really good encapsulation. It sounds, um, has, it, has it gotten worse or better? Or is there any kind of um, light at the end of the tunnel? Or are people optimistic or pessimistic? Or a little, little combination of both? Probably the latter. I mean, I think people's optimism or pessimism depends less on intellectual questions like can this great writer speak freely in the newspaper and more on questions like how much does gas cost, Mm, how mm. much does bread cost. I mean, bread in Egyptian Arabic dialect is called aish, meaning life. It's not called that in any other Arabic dialect. And it's, as I'm sure you can imagine, very much the foundational piece of food. I mean, for the one third of the population that lives in some version of poverty, 
the price of bread growing up even by a cent or half a cent is a disaster. Mm -hmm. And I, I think towards the end of the summer, this past summer when I was there, the prices of gas went up and that was a catastrophe. And then they went down and it, you, you do hear a lot about those kinds of things. Mm. If you meet the right kind of people, you'll talk more about freedom of speech issues. But I would wager to say that the ordinary Egyptian on the street isn't even aware that this publisher is in jail. Wow. Well, I hope I'm right about that. But it, it's just an, that's the assumption I make from having been there. And and in terms of, um, I mean, are you uh, it, uh a curious figure being American, Jewish, uh, of, of Syrian extraction, and also an Arabic speaker, are, are, or, or it, it, because you're a foreigner, are the, the other aspects of your background kind of, well, he's a foreigner, so we'll, we'll, uh, he's odd to begin with. Um, I, I'm just curious how you, you sort of fit in or don't fit in. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I'm still navigating this. My yeah. initial impulse always, I mean, this isn't the first time I've spent an extended period of time in the Arab world. When I was in Lebanon, for example, two summers ago or three summers ago, I lived in an apartment building. And at some point, the super or the owner, I can't remember what his exact role was, he asked me what my religion was. And for a lot of people in the Arab world, and this was in Lebanon, it would be the same thing in Egypt. The question is really Christian or Muslim. They kind of assume everything else is irrelevant. And you certainly can't say, I mean, it would be worse to say atheist, assuming that were true, and it's not true of yeah, me, yeah. than it would be to say Christian if you're not a Christian. Yeah, yeah. So I, I've always been about just honesty, because my feeling is that there's a good chance that, number one, this person has no idea that Jews used to live and were fully integrated in his home country. Mm -hmm. And I'm probably the first Jew or openly describing himself as a Jew person that he's going to meet. So I might as well kind of say I'm a Jew and, and take whatever small risk is associated with that and show yeah. him that I'm a human being. So that that's always been my approach. I've had mixed experiences. Um, in Egypt, I can think particularly in terms of, I don't know, I don't know whether this qualifies as anti-Semitism per se. What I've found is that a lot of people think that Jews just sort of own everything and have massive stockpiles of money. Um, and, and some people think that as a good thing, like I want to be like the Jews. And some people think that as a bad thing, like the Jews are, their, are my enemy and they're sort of holding me back. Um, it sounds like large sections of uh, the man without qualities. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's an old it's an old idea, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah. But like I know in Egypt, one of the booksellers that I've been friendly with and who's procured for me a lot of things that have been really important for my research, I'm thinking in particular of books about the history of Aleppo, just medieval printings that are a little bit hard to get a hold of. Not medieval printings, but printings of medieval texts that are hard to get a hold of. Um once he found out I was Jewish, he started raising the prices. Oh boy. Um, and at some point I called him out on it and he was like, well, you know, you, you, you've got everything, but to a, to a certain extent, he's right. I mean, as, as an American, even as a poor American, I'll see more in my lifetime than, than he does in his. Right. But as an American, not particularly as a Jewish American, no, not particularly as a Jewish American, <laughs> but you know, it, it does. I, I guess this is more to your, your question. It, it does kind of mix in a way that we now call intersectional. I mean, it's rarely just the one or the other. Um, it's the fact that I'm Jewish, I'm an American, I'm a, I'm a student at their university, kind of, but it's also not really their university because most Egyptians can't even afford the American university in Cairo. Mm -hmm. 
So I don't know. It's a complicated thing. Mm. Boy, oh boy. Yeah. Well, um, we uh, are really happy that uh, you could come on the podcast and, and sort pleasure. of update us. And, um, you know, I think we can maybe hint to our listeners that, um, uh, you know, you'll be joining us again in the future and, and maybe with a guest uh, so that we can continue talking about uh, Egypt and um, what's going on there. Um, well, exciting. Before, before I'm happy we to talk about, about anything. Yeah. Just a quick, quick question. I don't know if you, um, Josh, have you seen the new um, Arab Lit Quarterly, the, the publication? Yeah, I have. Is that something that um, is widely available in, in Egypt, or is that something that people talk are talking about? That's an interesting question. I, I don't want to get too into the weeds with this. The, the editor of Arab Lit Quarterly, Marshall Inks Quayley, is just a, an angel of God in the world of Arabic literature and translation. She's incredibly kind and incredibly helpful. And she started the blog Arab Lit, I don't know how long ago, and it's really, it's blown up in recent years, particularly with the quarterly, so much so that now it is really achieving traction on the ground. In other words, it's not just an outlet for Americans or Westerners who study Arabic literature and want to read it in English translation. It's become uh, much more integrated into the actual fabric of the world. So as far as I understand, you can get copies of Arab Lit quarterly at certain bookstores in Cairo. Um, I think that Marsha has sort of satellites in different parts of the Arab world. She has someone in Algeria. She herself lives in Morocco. And one of my colleagues uh, in the Casa Fellowship is going to be her, her satellite in, in Egypt, um, a really wonderful translator named Phoebe Carter. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I, I would definitely recommend people take a look. Yeah, because here it's 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 definitely the profile has been raised. Uh, at least, I mean, maybe I shouldn't talk like that because I mean, I just noticed it relatively recently, you know. So, and I, I've been I've been pulled into that, which is great. But I just haven't seen it before, you know. It seems it's, to be it's growing, kind of sort of a critical mass. Yeah, I mean, this is their fourth issue, I think, um, or their third, something like that, and it seems to be on an upward um, incline. I mean, I think it'll only get more and more available and more well-known and and marcia just has a, a an orbit around her where she attracts great people and great work so they even do this interesting thing i, I i'm not sure whether or not you'll find this uh, funny or interesting or what but she always has this running feature where she'll have someone come up with a playlist associated with a book like music and not necessarily music mentioned in the book but just sort of I don't know, music that makes you think of the book or that you like yeah, the book. Yeah, wonderful. I think it's interesting. I mean, it, I I think a lot about music, and I always try and think about ways to inter, in, integrate that with my interest in books. Uh, that's, I don't, yeah. It's, it's so funny, just because I was just, um, uh, when we did a podcast on um, on anniversaries, it was Johnson's anniversaries, and I was recommending people, first of all, look at Google Earth to actually see the locations, but also uh, listen to music that was played during that time and i did the same thing just uh yesterday with musil as i'm reading the man without qualities i suddenly had this desire to go look up what was what was performed in 1913 what was you know who were the new composers especially in austria and austria hungary uh and of course you got schoenberg you got verburn you got uh, the rite of spring premiered that year and so i, I start i put on some Ver Webern, um uh, six bagatelles for string quartet, 
uh, and then I, I listened to it as I was reading, and it really colored the reading in a very, very different light from what I was reading before. It suddenly acquired this um, extra dimension that was not something that – it's not the music that I heard. Not that I heard music while reading it, but you know, it wasn't like a Viennese waltz or anything like that, but it was something just kind of – mute there and then suddenly you have this you have this modern music as you're reading this book which is you know it was a very interesting combination that really kind of changed my perspective on the book a little bit actually a lot yeah uh, i totally agree that's something i recommend people do in general if you're reading something that's set in a certain year or a certain decade or epoch uh go and listen to the the audio version of what's been happening what has been happening that during that time you know it really enriches the experience. Or listen to the music like Patrick White talked about listening to um, a violin concerto, I, I think also by one of those Viennese composers. I'm not remembering the name Kreutzer, offhand. Probably. Say again? Kreutzer, maybe? No, I think... I, I, I can't remember it, but um, which is a shame because it, it just makes me sound less cool. But uh, <laughs> Patrick White listened to it on repeat while he was writing Voss, um, huh. his novel. And that he said that that was what enabled him to write this incredible book. And I was listening to it on repeat while I was reading it. And it does, it kind of, it has an elasticating or elongating or complicating effect on the texture. Yeah, yeah. especially because, the latter one, the complicating one. It's it, it really, because it's not, it's just not the sound that I expected to come out from this book. But yeah. once it did come out of this book and, and it was in context, it wasn't just some random piece of music. It was actually music that was, around right at that time it was new and fresh and it it, it really because the prose i mean i don't want to start talking about musical because we'll say that for for the musical podcast but the prose is not you know it's not a finnegan's wake it's not experimental prose though though there are elements certainly of uh, experimental stuff there uh so but it didn't match the music quite but the ideas were so radical and so new and so jarring and they jammed together you know so it was perfect for that so but again, it changed my perspective a little bit on the book because I did not expect that sound to come out of that book. Yeah. But once it did, it's of course it just makes complete and total sense. It's not it's not a Beethoven soundtrack. It's not Bach. It's definitely nineteen thirteen. You know, right of spring in your face, and um, you know. So I think it's really important to have that kind of oral version of of what you're reading. I couldn't agree more. Yeah, and then and then of course there's the uh, along with the artistic environment with with Habsburg Vienna there's this entire uh, intellectual swirl that's going around with uh, Otto Wagner and Freud and uh, Wittgenstein it, it's it's just an outrageous uh, basket of riches that that he was that he was writing from um, yes. yeah amazing stuff so. But how do we segue to our to our two articles, yeah. Rob? How do well, we do um, this? I think I, we I, just gotta go into it. I, I think I think you just did. And and so um, you know, I actually have a quote, as I often do, that I think can kind of help us set the scene here a little bit. So um, you know, this is the article in uh, Hungarian literature online again, the Romanian novelist, uh, an interview with him, uh Mir Chow Carterescu. Um, and he's really thinking about the role of the intellectual today, particularly in Europe. And he, um, some of the interview is devoted to the political scene in Europe, I mean, particularly this, this division that seems to be developing between, you know, illiberal Europe and liberal Europe. Um, but he also starts to get to the, and this is something that's close to my own heart, and I have a lot of thoughts on this, but the, the degraded 
intellectual world um, that we live in and the the uh, invasion of, of pop culture into what used to be high or you know elite culture. And he has a um, really interesting quote that I'd like to uh, read and, and have uh, you guys think about a little bit. And that is, um, he talks about there's always been you know, trashy novels or genre novels or popular novels. But he said, um, they have always existed uh, since time immemorial. But today, these manifestation, manifestations of popular culture have freed themselves from the condescending gaze of former times and occupied the entire foreground of literature. Like defenseless insects, they mimic aggressive insects. Mainstream novels are constrained to mediocrity in hybridizations with the layer of urban folklore so they can survive. And I've often felt that, that there seems to be this increasing suffocation of that which is real and that which is long lasting, that which is literature with um, what, what appears to be artistry or what appears to be a, a, a thoughtful novel by a thoughtful young person, you know, so-called literary fiction. Um, but I, I really like in this article that he he calls to task um, a lot of this, and, and he says later that um, you know much of it is is complete rubbish, and, and we have to sort of kind of call that out. He said, you know, today's world literature counts only a few great writers um, uh, that we have, and so um, I, I suppose in an American context, the idea that the intellectual no longer has a place or that elite culture no longer has a place is very passe. Um, but I, I think in Europe, um, you know, it's still once in a while, um, the media will invite uh, a novelist to come and, and comment on the on the events of the day. Uh, in France, for example, uh, Michel Welbeck, uh, you know, could end up on a Fox and Friends type television network to give his perspective. Those days are long gone in the United States. But, um, you know, just kind of curious, uh, you guys read uh, the interview, kind of what it what it brings up for you guys. Um, if I may jump in here, yeah. I, particularly just in this last point you mentioned, uh, yeah. provocatively, Fox and Friends. Yeah. I, I read this article and it's a, the issue of what is the role of the intellectual has come up um, in my capacity as a graduate student yeah. more times than I, I might like. Yeah. And I sometimes wonder, and I don't mean to be too tongue in cheek here, if it really, not if it really matters, obviously it matters to some degree, but the question, what is the role of the intellectual, seems to me different from what is the role of the writer? Is the writer no longer a public intellectual? I mean, yeah. freeing the writer from the need to be a public figure, from the need to take stands, from the need to participate in a facile way in our take culture is, I think, in large part, a good thing. And the point that Moore makes in his review about the increasingly small space that literary fiction or literature in general occupies, I sort of wonder whether or not that's a return to norm. I mean, if there was ever a time when great literature was really celebrated and was commercially viable, that time is certainly gone. But it, it seems to me that that great literature or literature with a capital L has always been a minority undertaking, whether it's undertaken by a very educated or wealthy elite or whether it's undertaken in the sort of dusty corners of a monastery. I mean, I'm not sure that 
writers should be public intellectuals. Yeah, you know, I I uh, I think that's a point well taken. I mean, I, I suppose the the frame of reference in a North American or an American context for me also is, you know, mid-century, mid-20th century America, where names like William Faulkner, Ernest yeah. Hemingway, Robert Lowell, um, these were these were popularly known. These were people who ended up on Time magazine. So there was a time, at least uh, briefly, uh, where serious writers, writers of serious import were were central to the culture. And even if people didn't read them, they might feel guilty that they didn't read them. They, they, there used to be a time when you could aspire or you were, you were at least um, aware that there was uh, a higher realm that, that you could participate in. Um, I mean, that's of course entirely destroyed. Um, I mean, your, your second point about, which is, which is very interesting is should, should writers really even be getting involved in commenting on whatever it is, Brexit or, you know, Donald Trump or the Arab Spring, whatever it is. Um, and um, in in this article, he actually talks about that. And he says, uh, quote, today's intellectuals can no longer speak for the principles of the ordinary person like freedom, dignity, or um, perform performativity without becoming suspicious in the eyes of both radically opposing ideologies. In a way, they're reliving the drama of the 30s and 40s when, in a world radicalized between fascism and communism, um, they felt a burden to to kind of choose sides. And I think of George Orwell or Andre Malraux, um, uh, or even, you know, uh, the Latin American writers more recently who, who have felt they had to identify themselves politically. American writers have always had somewhat of a luxury to, to be kind of aloof from that. Um, so, so yeah, there, there is a danger. Um, Roman, I don't, I don't know if, yeah, you, no, what, I, what your I, thoughts are on I mean, that. I mean, it's, it also, I mean, we just kind of talked about it, but without really identifying it. I mean, the whole cultural differences, you know, American writers, European writers. I mean, in Europe, uh, I know as a Russian that the Russians perhaps don't read as much as they used to, but they are still on uh, masse sort of celebrate their writers. Yeah. Um, you know, I've been I've been uh, one of my favorite writers is Czech, you know, Bohemil Rabal, and you, you go there. Not I, I can't say it from personal experience, but that's what I've read. You go there, and people know this writer. He appeals to the common man, quote unquote. Uh, you know, he, he's talked about still, you know, he died in what, 1998. Um, even the case with Nagi Mahfouz in Egypt. Yes. Yes. People know about him. You, you yeah. know, a lot of people know about him. So maybe not a lot of people read his books, but they're aware. Yeah. So the situation is different here where the origin of popular culture. So we, you know, as, as Americans, we have been inundated with it and it has leaked into this uh, you know, elite level um, and now things are kind of muddied and 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 saturated, and there's no particular distinction. But then, and then you get in public intellectuals like Malcolm Gladwell and TED Talks, and everything's packaged and and just so and and frankly, but he's down. but he is a but we should be clear that this is a a modern grade B pop intellectual, right? This this <laughs> well, is that's what we have. That's what right. we have. Don't have Umberto. Yeah who was a public intellectual, you know, in Italy, 
That's right. a public intellectual, right? Umberto Eco. But, uh, uh, you know, but, how about Pynchon writing cultural essays? Where Where is he with his cultural criticism? Uh, or, you know, right. we, 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 the, the things that we do get are far and few between, and they're, they're kind of weak and not, not really relevant. And so no wonder literature is pushed to the side, because maybe it is a good thing, like Josh, you were saying, um, I don't think the writer should be tasked with that, uh, at least a serious writer. But as as readers, we are looking for that. We're, you know, I mean, as I was growing up, I was very much influenced by people like Robert Antle Wilson, who, yeah, granted, he's not a you know, literary type of writer, but he's a writer nonetheless. But really, uh, George Carlin, I was looking to George Carlin, the comedian, for my sort of how to look at the world, you know, how to how to respond to this crazy America that I was growing up in. Uh, but I was not looking at these, I, at least they were not there for me. I wasn't, you know, I didn't find these um, public intellectuals uh, influencing me that much as I was growing up. The reading their books influenced me. Um, so, you know. In my, in my experience, I, I mean, I, and I wouldn't claim to speak for any other reader or bookish person, but uh, my primary experience of reading as a child was to find my sense of the imagination validated and expanded. And it was only when I grew up that I found myself reading for ideas or arguments or contexts that were somehow relevant to my sense of politics. Mm. Um, I mean, I, I yeah, I, I can remember spending hours reading and it was very... I mean, I guess from a political perspective, certainly a, a leftist perspective would say it was it was a waste of time, but it was entirely individuated. It was entirely about the imagination, the mind, impressions, images, and had nothing to do with, um, I mean, I, I guess because I was able to grow up in a kind of somewhat insular American suburban sort of Well, same here, place. same for us, I mean, yeah. for a lot of people as well. I mean, you know, if you grew up in America, chances are you grew up in suburbia and chances are you're, you're insular, you know? That's yeah. The kind of, that's the kind but of... That's uh, why in places like Latin America and across the global south, literature has so much more of a political charge historically and is so much more wrapped up. I mean, Bolaño has recurring tropes throughout his novels of characters who are have allegiances to literature and then get sort of wrapped up in some unseemly way in politics mm. uh, for good or for bad, both official politics, like the politics of the Pinochet regime or sort of leftist guerrilla politics. Yes. Yeah, so I'm, I'm trying to think of the, um, uh, the, the novel set in Mexico city. And there was this young group of, uh, of, of radical poets and they, and they gave That's themselves, effective. The Savage Detectives, yeah. Yeah. What What was the name of the uh, the 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 sort of radical poet group that the characters belonged to? It was a, uh, oh, yeah. It was a great a great name. Um, but it sounds but, like it sounds like stuff that uh, re recapitulating stuff that happened uh, with Russia. You know, the pre-Soviet and right as the formation of the Soviet Union, there was also a lot of uh, you know radical poets and publications, and and then everything, of course, went away, or at least went underground. I mean, that's why, I mean, I remember I kind of, I was born in Russia, even though I'm not really Russian. I, I you know, I only spent like six years there, so I left as a little kid. But I, you know, my parents were these, you know, St. Petersburg or Leningrad, uh, you know, 1970s intellectuals, you know. <laughs> so I grew up with all these books and all the, and these writers being venerated. I mean, you know, mm. these time is that writers, we didn't see official publications, but they were venerated. 
as so, as these like you know secret guideposts to the world. Roman, yeah. have you ever heard of Der Nister, uh, the uh, the Yiddish Soviet Yiddish writer? The was pathetic, the name again? Der Nister. It's it's Yiddish for the hidden one. No Hebrew word, but. Yeah. Uh, First of all, he has a, a book with the, well, he's long dead, but the, a book of his has been published in translation by the New York Review of Books. Uh, I think it's called The Family Mashver, and it's like a family saga. But he's an interesting name that comes to mind in this conversation and in the Soviet context in particular, because him and his generation of Yiddish writers whose intellectual maturity straddles the revolution they themselves at an earlier period, whether they live, I think some of them hung out in Berlin, so they were outside of the Soviet orbit. And then, of course, because of what ended up happening in Germany, they went back to the Soviet Union. And their early works are much more sort of experimental, um, magical, naturalist, etc. And then they get sort of stuck in this incredibly rigidly repressive Soviet aesthetic regime where if you didn't write socialist realism, you couldn't write at all. And the funny thing is, is that many of these people wrote socialist realism, like all of Dernister's later writings, his masterpiece, the, this long novel I'm talking about, he wrote a, a, a saga, like a family saga set in Berdichev in what is now Ukraine. And, and critics have said that he finds ways of making it magical under the guise of socialist realism. But even that didn't save him. Stalin still murdered all the major Yiddish writers of the Soviet Union. Mm. So I don't know. I mean, my feeling is that whenever I mean, I'm not saying writing shouldn't be political because we've long known that everything is political. And that uh, to the extent that politics is a part of a human life, it will become a part of a human writing. But um, I don't know an example of a writer who has tried to force himself or herself to be relevant in this sort of immediate political way that didn't sort of have it bite them in the ass on the yeah. other. Yeah, well, you can't, yeah, you can't force it. If it doesn't come out of your natural, whatever it is that you want to say, then it's, if you're, if you're adding it with some scotch tape, it's just, it's going to show. Yeah, well, I guess I just worry that articles like this, I mean, not particularly the, the interview with the uh, Romanian author whose name I can't pronounce, but Carterescu. <laughs> the idea that a writer needs to be a public intellectual is, I think, an oppressive one. Um, I think it can very easily turn into uh, a cudgel that makes writers who might otherwise want to write about imaginary beings end up having to write about, you know, something that feels topical and then and then remains topical. I mean, Faulkner's books will be relevant long into the future when the memory of the Jim Crow South is entirely dead. Um, but. But yes, but let me let me see if I can articulate this, that what's so tiring about for me about the current public discourse is how predictable and narrow it is. So it's it's drawing upon the same, you know, media, political, business and entertainment figures. And it's so predictable and it's from such a narrow uh, frame of reference. And so part of Part of my yearning, in a way, to see uh, writers, intellectuals, painters, filmmakers to be brought into this is simply by by virtue of you know the, the hours of meditation, the the unique vocation of spending all this time alone and thinking deeply about things that that they might be able to help um, break the ice to somehow break through 
ways of thinking that that I mean, this is the part that's so exhausting for me. And I and I often find myself just uh, refusing to to go online or to to watch any kind of media. Um, Who could blame you? Yeah, but Rob, so, I mean, guys, but this, I mean, it's it's like maybe maybe we're just missing it because you know the the we're just taking the example of the Soviet Union. I mean, you a huge country, lots of people, lots of writers, etc. But uh, you know, you heard certain voices. There, there, you just heard them. Brodsky, you you just heard them. You know, here we have, or at least in you know in, in today's world, not just particularly here in America, it's just a, such a multiplicity of voices that even if there is, there are few people out there who are, you know, singing that beautiful song and something different and really deep and interesting. It just could be being lost in the general noise. I mean, I think that's what would, uh, that's what the article about the you know the literature with a big L and then with a little L, this popular literature taking over. It's just it's a it's a it's a it's an effect of a blindness. Uh, but but isn't this but isn't this multiplicity of voices simply like thirty one different flavors of soda pop? At the end of the day, it's just soda pop. Well, but then you, I, yeah, I get bored of Coke after a while. Stuff. I want new flavors. But it's still, but it's still Coke. No, absolutely, no. Yeah. It is. I mean, it, I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't think I can say I share your nostalgia, Rob. Yeah. But only because I'm younger than you, and this has always been the case for me. And I've always sort of felt like when looking at the public sphere, I'll turn my back and look elsewhere for stimulation. I, I almost have given up entirely on the possibility of a more meaningful public discourse. But at the same time, I don't think we need to be that defeatist. I mean, th there are concrete things that can be done. It didn't used to be this way in the country, not because of some magical transformation, but because of material changes. I mean, the the idea of the shift from sort of the, the capitalism of the early 20th century into what we now call neoliberal capitalism is fundamentally that the market came to dominate everything. I mean, even outside of its own sort of purview, it wasn't just the sort of Wall Street operation obeyed its own rules and played its own game and other things like literature and art were not necessarily marketable but could survive on their own terms yep. now we live in a world where everything is subservient to the market where everything is about buying and selling and you know i mean there there are so many concrete things we could do like i know in france they subsidize independent bookstores yes, we yes. don't do that really here in the united states the national endowment for the arts is is uh, a poor uh, example of what it could be, but, but material but ways to have been growing, nonetheless. Yeah, you know they've, they've actually exploded recently, the past year. No, I, I just mean that I I want to I I personally, and again maybe it's just generational thing. I would want to use the kind of nostalgic feeling for a more meaningful public discourse to push for material change rather than to imagine that something at a metaphysical level has actually, like our our souls are different. Or, <laughs> I mean, I do think that mass culture poisons us. Yeah. No I, doubt yeah. about it. But it doesn't need to be this way. Well, but we, 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 we are, you know, there's no there's no clear separation as much as we'd like to maybe separate ourselves from that. But there is really, the, the borders are very fuzzy, uh, popular, high culture, whatever you yeah. want to call it. There's no dividing line, really. There are there are percentages, more you know, more or less. Um, and I just, I, 
And I really like nostalgic for what? I mean, even in, when we were your age, Josh, it was, <laughs> it was, it was just and you know what? Reading Musil, I mean, uh, if you take this podcast and transcribe it and fix up the language a little bit and make it fancy and add some cool metaphors, it could be right straight out of the man without qualities. Mm. I mean, that's exactly what they were talking about in 1913 or in the 20s when Musil was actually writing it. You know, that's they were going through the same thing. Capitalism was taking over. That too many voices. There were this very similar complaints. Uh, who's the public intellectual in that book? And again, I really, I'm sorry, I'm going back to that book, but it's just on my mind. You know, the, the Arnheim. Arnheim is a is a mover and shake on a world scale. He's a capitalist. He's a, he's one of these people who we you know. He's a Jeff Jeff Bezos or something, you know, or or somebody like that. So it's it's not new what we're talking about, but it's I mean obviously the flavors have changed. The the constitution, the various percentages of popular culture is now really huge. Uh, I don't think it was that way in 1913. Um, but but you know we 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 sit here we we clamor for some sort of um, vestiges of some sort of um, world order in the literature in the literary world, I guess. Right. But but there's no such order left. It seems like, uh, you know, it's. Um, but again, it's just been it's I, been going on for hundreds of years. Yeah, I, I guess <laughs> I guess I I want to know, and and uh, we we've been chatting a bit about Helen Dewitt, and I want to know why are there only three Helen Dewitt novels, and you know, thirty nine Joyce Carol Oates novels, and it's just <laughs> there there's just there's something wrong with with the publishing model with with the, the the people who control the levers um and, and, not, and i know it takes risks everything is based yeah. on what can sell i mean right i right. know this is someone who feels i mean i write and i translate and i i do my little projects and you know i might as well be be operating in obscurity aside from the times in which i come on your podcast because right. the the publishing world to me it, it feels like i want to be an actor i mean it, it just feels that impossible that i could ever find yes. acceptance there and then they look at what i have to say and it's like oh this will never no one in their right, right mind will sit and read this right but i you know i agree and but one of you also talked about josh uh we we need to have a certain optimism or uh, a certain we need to be careful of nostalgia which i agree and and i would i would say to to buffer your point that this podcast is tiny as it is i think these are the kind of things this is culture this is, this is influencing the cultural conversation. These these small, personal, but intense, passionate discussions, and we've Roman and I have discovered that um, we had no idea that this world existed. But as soon as we started putting out this tiny amateur podcast, there is a hunger among people all over the world who are passionate, who want to engage deeply with 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 literature and books and it's it's really invigorating and i i i assume you feel similar roman i mean it's yeah it's been no, it's, it's been really it's been a great surprise yeah to, to find this you know you guys and, do an amazing service um so so i think it it applies also to what the fiction that you're writing it also applies to the translation work it i i think people will eventually come to something that is that is sort of true and passionate um I, I definitely feel that, um, although I do have hints of nostalgia for a former time. Um, <laughs> That's but, unavoidable uh, with age, Rob. It is, but <laughs> but I I would also say that, 
you know, you could recall, Roman, that we um, in the in the late 80s, we started going to Harvard Square uh, in Cambridge near the university when we were in high school. And at that point, there was still literally probably a dozen used bookstores. And and it was such a yeah, four in the in one square mile. Yeah. And it was such a thriving intellectual environment. And we would go to cafes and and you would see people, you know, writing in journals and and having passionate discussions. And and so so we had a a bit of a brush with this sort of pre-digital semi-old world intellectual environment. And it it's never left me. Um and 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 it's something it's like a high that I chase. Um and I get glimpses of it here and there. Um, and so in some ways with this podcast and with the community that sort of sprung up around it, I, I realized that, ah, there's, there's still people with this deep hunger, um, you know, that, that I've always felt. Mm. No, absolutely. Absolutely. But I mean, then, then, but, you know, coming back to the, to what we're talking about, um, it just seems like, I think them I think I think we are drowning in some sort of multiplicity of voices and then you have to sort of retreat you have to retreat from this from the modern age in order to be able to deal with it I mean I don't know about you guys but when I spend too much time on Twitter I get depressed yeah that or, or I get this this glazed look on my eyes and I'm like am I uh, am I in a simulation of the universe is this is this really me or what's going you know you lose you lose certain and then, but then realize that something's going on because you keep clicking. So something, I mean, there's something very, and I think uh, obviously we, we, you know, just a lot of people have proposed, you know, what the something is, but there's uh, something very addictive and something very, you know, you get that dopamine rush or whatever it is from getting likes and whatnot, but it's, it's horrible. I mean, it's great. It's wonderful for this connection, but at the same time, it's horrible. So, so, and I, I, Think I'm thinking that you know when when the automobile first got introduced, roads had no markings. There was like no middle divider, no nothing like that. You know who's going to be on the right, who's going to be on the left. And so for quite a quite a few years, I mean, I think it was like a decade or two, um, there were many accidents and there was a lot of chaos. You know, plus the transition between uh, the automobiles and the the horses. So so it was a lot of chaos for about two decades. And I'm thinking, yeah, and I'm thinking maybe this is what's happening now with, with this online kind of existence that we have, that we still don't quite have the right rules or the, the, the sort of the, the thing that will make the whole thing make sense and, and work more or less. Um, and so it's kind of this wild west, no markings in the road, drive wherever you want kind of feeling. And so a lot of people are getting hurt, but a lot of people also jumping those new shiny cars because that's the new technology. So... I, I feel like we're in some sort of a transitional phase, and maybe things will, will at least from that perspective, get better in the next decade or so. I don't, I don't know. I think another way of looking at this issue that we haven't touched on yet. Um, I apologize for interrupting. Did you want? No, 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 no. We're just talking. So, uh, yeah, I mean, we're we've been talking up till now about the kind of public sphere version of of where literature fits and where it doesn't fit. Um, and another way of framing the issue is, in my experience, having been in what is ostensibly all that remains of the elite, the tallowed halls of Princeton, among other universities, I meet a lot of people who are involved in literature, who like to read, at least on paper, and 
who whose whole lives are dedicated to literature in some form or another, but their fear of elitism, I mean, elitism has really become a bad right. to make it yeah. impossible for them to make this distinction between so-called high and low, or, I mean, I prefer literature with a capital L because high and low has obviously moral implications, um, but they, they, they won't make it. I mean, it, it's, it's, it's anathema to a, a great many people that I've had to work with. And my feeling is that aside from the whole public conversation, I mean, the public is not going to make that distinction because they've been sold a bill of goods that is far more quicker acting. Um, but in, in, in our conversations, uh, privately in, in certain circles, I feel like we've lost the ability of just sort of simply maintaining that quality has a place, aesthetic quality has a place. And there are good books that are better than other books. And there are also bad books and we don't necessarily have to read everything, um, simply because it comes out. I mean, I, th I think even Helen, not Helen DeWitt, um, Another author who I read an interview with made this point of the, the tyranny of having to read everything mm -hmm. new, even at the literary level. Yeah. Yes. Um, yeah, I mean, in the interview, Cordorescu says, in reality, the vast majority of the thousands and tens of thousands of movies, songs, or novels are simply rubbish, uh, more harmful to the public than if they had never existed at all. So, um, I mean, sadly, that's... You know, that's my personal experience. Um, going to a bookstore is is very exciting, but but like you, Josh, someone who also writes fiction, it can be very very deflating to to look at books that are are ordinary at best. Ordinary at best is probably the made charitable way of saying it. What's that? I was going to say made for TV books. Uh, yeah, I mean, and and these are books that have you know. Large publishers behind them, large marketing campaigns, um, are endorsed by writers of a certain credibility. Um, but you realize that it's it's um, you know it's like a box of cornflakes or something. These are just products, uh, and you have to kind of just move on from them. But what do you? I mean, for, in your perspective and your generational sense of these things, I mean, do you fear being called an elitist? Is that something that exerts an influence on you? I personally don't, and I'm um, around a lot of people that I think suffer from this fear. Yeah. Um, Maybe the, are they all academics, Josh? Not all academics, but no? you know, I mean, you see it in the in the Moore interview, which is the other article that we that we read for this conversation, mm -hmm. where he he mentions the expansion, or it, one of these academic books that he's reviewing. The author talks about expanding literature to include, you know, everything from radio right, jingles right, right, right. to et cetera, et cetera, or like yes, what's written yes. on the back of your cereal box. But um, and, and Moore is just very, I mean. He does it with a little bit of sarcasm, but he's also taking a principled stand. He's like, look, this is. I make a distinction between literature and non-literature. I think this is a thing. I think that it has its own qualities and particularities. And I, he doesn't actually outright say this, but I have to imagine that it, he basically thinks if you want to call me an elitist, so be it. Go ahead, call me an elitist. Uh, but in a, in a, he can kind of afford to say that because he's not that much of a public figure. Right. Well, I, he's, an, he's an independent scholar. He's not associated exactly. with any university. He's also nearing 70, which gives yeah. him certain rights to say whatever the fuck he wants. Exactly. But you where know? are the people getting up, uh, people in my generation and slightly older getting up and, and saying, as we've said on this podcast, I mean, I think we all agree on this, that like there is such a thing as literature capital L. The culture may not believe in it, but we do. 
Yeah. I think we should yeah. stand up for that. I guess that's all I'm saying. No, yeah, that, yeah. that's Except what this podcast that it, is all about, yeah. Josh. Exactly. Yeah. That's that's why we're here. That's why we're talking because we want to. Because we have Rob and I also getting besides the personal slacking off a little bit with intellectual life as you know as with age, and we were like worried about that. And we're like we want to continue reading great books and and talking about it. So that's that was an impetus for this podcast. But really, the the, the major one was you know we really want to preserve this the good stuff where is the good stuff how come nobody's talking about it or very few people talking about it you know what we wanted sort of to to champion it you know absolutely but it is it is it is a very old conversation again i just want to point that out it's it's been going on for decades if not even potentially hundreds of years certainly from the time of musil you can see it right in his writing in the book um so it's not it, the nature of it has changed. Some of the features have changed, but it's not quite, not quite a new thing at all, you know. Um, so, but it is. It seems to have some sort of a direction, and that's that's what I think worries us. Because it's, it's the wrong direction. <laughs> I, know, I couldn't agree more on that front. We're pushing back, you know. Yeah, it feels like the problems that we've been touching on do just get worse and worse with time. And even though there are increasingly more things like the Feeling Bookish podcast, by which I mean small, intimate, meaningful gatherings of people. And I know this is funny. I'm about to advocate for pessimism after having spent the first half hour advocating <laughs> for optimism. But these small things, they don't coalesce into a kind of, um, I don't know, a, a mass that seems to counter the very, very large shadow. Right. And, I, and I'm also I'm also not worried particularly, but I I'm a, I'm a sufficiently self-aware and, and well read in, in quote unquote, you know, great literature to know that it's it's um, things are, are, are changing to the point where that great literature might not take the same forms that I expected to take. And so in a way, you have to sort of take what we're saying with a huge grain of salt. Uh, preferably kosher salt, um, you know, just because because we I, we are of a certain mindset, and and as Musil teaches us, as soon as you come to some sort of a conclusion or you have a certain idea, it it, it does violence to reality by excluding all the other possibilities that might be happening. We're just not maybe expressing it the right way or not expressing it at all. So there's, I always like to leave room. For this stuff that I call bad, because it might not just be quite as bad, or maybe not from a, from a different. You know what I mean? It's just as a. But, you but you're not leaving open. room on the abstract concept. In other words, you're still saying literature capital L exists. I may not know its borders, but I know it exists. Exactly, and those borders are exactly so well put, Josh. Thank you. The, the, it's the borders yeah. that you continually sort of look for and mark, and they are they're always shifting. You know, there's always a shift going on, and. This quality, the actual with a big Q, uh, something that I think the Robert Persig and the Zen and Art of Motorcycle Maintenance really kind of kept on going and going about it. This quality that you look for is is not something that you can define. It's something that you can you can sort of you can sort of have a, uh, a kind of a probabilistic approach, saying probably this is good. I mean, obviously, when you read something like like Jim Gower's novel, 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 explosive, excuse my pronunciation, uh, a relatively recent book by an unknown author. He's a mathematician, but the prose is just amazing. You know, just amazing. Um, 
very few people read it. It's just not out there, but it should be one of the one of these novels that everybody talks about, you know, but yet it's not. So, but I and also just reading about how people are, are reading less, but they're still consuming books in the form of audio uh, because they, you know, they have these long commutes or whatever, and they just don't feel like reading, but they have all these, everybody's got their earbuds, you know, it's so easy now. Um, so how does, how does that change our relationship to literature when we're not actually reading it? Um, you know, it's now we're listening to it, which is great because you also need to listen to literature because it's, it's, it needs the ear, especially some of the great literature, like like Finnegan's Wake. If you don't read it out loud, you you're not doing it right. Uh, but still, you know, reading as as an act is has increasingly taken a back seat. At least long form reading, everybody's reading their phones, little snippets of articles. But even me, I'm sitting down to read Musil, and 25 pages later, I'm like, oh, that was a lot of reading. It's just 25 pages. It used to be nothing <laughs> for me, you know. I used yeah, to go through 100 it- pages a day or 200. Um, so it's becoming a little bit more difficult and it's partly my age, partly the fact that the digital revolution has, has fucked up my brain, has, has <laughs> messed up everybody's brain, but it's changing. And so if you reject it, you're, you're also doing something incorrect, or at least not incorrect, but you know, if you reject it, like I remember this, um, might've said this on this podcast before, uh, Bukowski, uh, Charles Bukowski, uh, this lots of him on, you know, video of him online, but this is one video where he's walking down the stairs in 1970s LA and he's, he comes outside and he goes to the interviewer and he goes to the camera, you see this? And the camera goes, what? The smog, everybody hates it, but I love it. And the interviewer goes, why? He goes, because that's what is. So by rejecting that's what is, that's happening now outright, I think we're throwing the baby out with the bathwater. In the you way. know, Philip Roth has this quote um, that, one of, something you just said reminded me of where he says, if it takes you longer than a week or two to read a novel, you're not really reading it. Um, <laughs> I, I think that you brought up a really interesting issue. I mean, on the one hand, we do. I recently recently, I mean, in the last year and a half, made a Twitter again after having hid from the app um, as decisively as I could. And I, I did that. And it's done nothing but good for me. But I did it on the basis of, okay, one needs to engage. One needs to remain open to some degree Mm -hmm. because one cannot know uh, where the line ought to be drawn. But, you know, I mean, there are other circumstances in which I think standing up for principle really matters. Like when I was starting to become a teacher and I did my first college class, I was doing a kind of great books class. And the first time you teach at Princeton, you have to take a pedagogy seminar concurrently. And one of the conversations that we kept having and kept reading all these, uh, pardon my French, utterly insipid articles about, um, they were just sort of pedagogists saying, well, the 45-minute lecture doesn't really work because people's attention spans wane. And so you should do like 15 minutes and then a break or and then have people get around and do a dance or just all these kind of newfangled ways. And I just remember getting up in front of my, uh, in front of the other people in the pedagogy center saying, like, we know how to do this. Like you sit and read a book in quiet, mm-hmm. you think about it, you come in and talk about it. Like there's no newfangled technology that's going to make this, you know, more faster, easier, more efficient, whatever. Like we have to preserve a space, however small for this activity, or it will just, die in our culture and we'll become dinosaurs yeah yeah no we we definitely do have i mean there's definitely a fight on our hands here but it's it's a very it's both personal and very public 
Yeah. And and like, you know, the lines are very very fuzzy, but 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 there's there you know we again that's why we're doing this because we're we're somehow standing up for something that's it's relatively amorphous. You know, it's not something that we can really put our finger to, and it's also constantly changing. So you have to, I don't know you have to keep this you can't keep the mind open too much because obviously then the mind will fall out or whatever the you know the metaphor is bad. But it's just. There's this constant tension between what is right and what is what is right for you as an individual, just just on a personal level, and what is right for you as an individual who lives in society. And those two things are always in conflict with each other, I think, to some degree, you know. And and what we sort of condemn in society, we have to be kind of careful because it's part of us in a way. So this, I I I, I urge caution. <laughs> in defending literature with a big L. Yeah. You know, you know Roman, I've, I've, I've said it to you before, but I, I still feel that the greatest uh, title for a novel ever is uh, Georges Perec, uh, Life, a User's Manual. Mm. And, and, and so in some ways, I, I, I think I'm always poking around in great literature for for that cheat sheet in a certain way yeah. of, of yeah. how, how to live this, this life and, yeah. and with all of its mystery. Yeah. Central, central question uh, yeah. for the man without qualities. I know. I, I don't want to say life. too much central about question that. question for us as human beings, frankly. Of I mean, course. Let's, let's, so, let's, let's actually come down to something definite and say, this is it. I mean, how do right. we live? And like I yes. said, I was looking for people like George Carlin to tell me how to live. Exactly. Uh, but not, not major writers at, at least not at that time. Right. Um, and, and just to, to kind of bring us back to that discussion, we should probably uh, wrap wrap this up anyway. But you know, this 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 public intellectual today might not look like a public intellectual of yesterday. It will, it, it's a different beast, and I'm not, not talking about Malcolm Gladwell type of different beast, but it's somebody that we should keep an eye out on because it's it's not somebody we've yet caught. Meaning it's it's still it's not, I'm not talking about any specific individual individual, but the type, the type is somebody that we haven't quite gotten a handle on yet. I don't think because of this the medium that's 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 between us and these other minds is so new. Yes, this this digital I, medium is very new, and it's in the publishing world is changing. The publishing formula is changing, and yes, the market is always driving it. But but we have to look sort of underneath that, uh, and and you know it's it's a hard task. It's not an easy task. Right. No, I I I realize that you know a twenty five year old Susan um, Sontag is not going to probably you know pop out of the woods. But no, but she's I, in I the still woods. We just don't see her because there's yeah. about two thousand other ones like her. You know, I I I, I do think that uh, you know it's, uh, genius is also yet another major concept for Musil, and. The, the the definition of genius has shifted yet again from 1913 when he when he rails against how a horse can be considered genius a racing horse you know uh, or, or or a tennis player is a genius um, so the definition of genius has totally changed or expanded and so now now we have to almost like narrow it down again it seems like I don't know exactly how to do that. Except that well, all the people that I like, you know. Well, when I, when I initially called this episode the big dialogue of literature, I was a little skeptical even myself. But now after having this amazing hour-long conversation, I, I think it's a good title, actually. I think we, we had a yeah. big, fascinating dialogue. Um, we, we have kind of reached the, 
outer limits of our podcast uh, time-wise. Um, but I, I want to throw it out to Roman and Josh. Is there any any parting thoughts or recommendations? Or uh, Well, you said the outer limits, and I would yeah. say the twilight zone. Yeah. <laughs> Literally, yes. it's, it's, it's almost twilight here in New York. Yes. Yeah, I don't have anything quippy to say. Um, <laughs> I, I think that this is one of those issues that require a bunch of openness and dialogue and also firmness and uh, belief and faith. Yeah, no, it's 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 got to combine. It's got to combine. It's like a it's it's got to be a Taoist approach. It's got to be yin and yang. You can't just push for one thing and ignore the others. It, it's it's a it's a bit of a dance, uh, and it's always changing. So, but it's fun. It's fun. I think for, for the most part, anyway. It's, for me, it's fun to keep an eye out on on what's what's this next great writer, um, and when you don't find that. When you feel lost, when you've been on Twitter for too long, you always have the classics to fall back on. You know, that's the nice, the wonderful thing about being a brainy, a bookish person is that you have a lot of things to sort of give you a bomb, you know, from this, from this uh, veil of tears here. Amen uh, to that. You know, so we have we have a lot of ammunition that we can go back to rearm ourselves. I'm sorry to use freaking horrible military metaphors, but you know, to to just kind of uh, enrich ourselves once we get depleted by the modern world a little bit, we can always sort of get the gas back into the tank and keep on you know keep on trucking. Amen, brother. <laughs> um, Josh, uh, we thank you again. Um, I think at, at this point, we consider you an FOP, friend of the podcast, um, Love it. And, also, and also just a friend. So uh, as I told the listeners, uh, we will be talking to Josh again. Um, so uh, do not despair. But at least now you have two podcasts to, uh, to enjoy his uh, intellect and insights. So thank you, Josh. Um, so we will wrap up. And again, this is Rob Fay. And you can follow me on, speaking of Twitter, at Robert Fay One. Thank you to Roman Sivkin. Yo. At Zenju. And Josh, I don't know if you are uh, actively a Twitter yeah, guy. If Twitter. This... Oh, no, no, no. I, I use Twitter. What's Josh your handle, Josh? Right? Something like that? What is it? It's uh, Josh Calvo 220. Nice. And uh, also thanks to Heston Hoffman, our sound engineer. You can follow him on Twitter at Heston Hoffman. So thank you guys. Uh, amazing discussion and uh again for folks reading robert musel keep reading robert musel keep reading keep going it's great all right thanks guys thank you all take right. care thanks, all bye